Living Stones is a weekly conversation about living a truly Catholic life. Deacon Harold Burke Sivers and Ken Hellenius help you deepen your relationship with Christ and His Church, discussing practical ways to grow in faith, participate more fully in the liturgy, and practice charity towards all. Hello and welcome to Living Stones. I'm your co-host, Ken Hellenius, and sitting across from me in the virtual studio is the bass player for the St. Louis Jesuits himself, Deacon Harold Burke Sivers. Hello, Deacon. Hey, how you doing, Ken? Always great to be with you. Pleasure to be with you, and I love your base work on City of God. <laughs> oh, yeah. I think my style's a little bit more uh, in the chant mode, right? <laughs> yeah, right? I joke with someone that, uh, you know, I go to an extraordinary form parish here in South Bend, and yet... When I go to a funeral or I go to an occasion where I, I'm with uh, with friends, I can sing every word of every St. Louis Jesuit song without even opening the book. You know, <laughs> there are just some things, you know, for, you know, it's as if they're tattooed on the back of your eyelids. And uh, any any of those hits by Bob Dufford or John Foley, they're right there. I got them to hand. <laughs> Oh, beautiful. Well, Deacon, it's uh, school is beginning. Can you believe it? We're already in, at the end of August here, and school is already beginning. The kids are back. The, uh, the, they're bright-eyed. They're excited about uh, the, the new year. Teachers are excited. Nobody is uh, tired out and tuckered yet. How are things at Shea Burke Sivers? Well, you know, we have two kids in college now, so uh, the house oh is getting gosh. emptier. Uh, by the year, it seems, you know, and uh, yeah. so it's just a little strange uh, having two, only only the twins home now, you know, wow. and, and uh, they're busy with their activities. And so, uh, you know, I'm still traveling. So Colleen's trying to figure out what to do with herself because <laughs> yeah. she's been spending so much of her life focusing uh, on the needs of the kids, you know. So now she's uh, we're going to find more time to spend together. And also uh, she's going to figure out what she can do to fill her time and. Uh, so it's just a, a kind of a little bit different phase for us as we uh, quickly approach empty nesthood. That's crazy, isn't it? Uh, I mean, now it's funny because, you know, last week we started talking about Humanae Vitae and uh, blessed soon to be saint, very soon to be saint, uh, Paul VI's document on um, on the regulation of births and on, on really on married love and uh, specifically like the physical aspects of married love. And uh, one of the things that he talks about with love, and we'll get, we'll get into it today, is, is that married love particularly is meant to draw you ever deeper into relationship with one another. And of course, a, a critical part of that is is how we co-create with God in the generation and and then the raising of new life. Um, you're entering a that phase, like you say, where where you've generated, you know, you've had the kids, you've raised half of your kids already. You know, I mean, gosh, this is a, this is a new spot. No, uh, absolutely. Yeah, it is a new spot, and I I, I think this we're going to start to see now why. Uh, people say Paul VI was, was a prophet <laughs> oh, <laughs> with, yeah. with this document and why he went against, as you mentioned, we mentioned in the last show when you were giving us a wonderful history and background of this document, why he went against the commission's, uh, the majority uh, report, as you called it, uh, findings from the commission that was looking at all this and, and uh, you know, ended up being very prophetic. And we'll, we'll take a look at that as we move uh, through the series here. As we're diving in, you know, we're, we're looking at uh, in paragraph four here. 
Mm-hmm. You know, and it's talking about um, the churches in interpreting the moral law. And it, it's, he says here, no member of the faithful could possibly deny that the church is competent in her magisterium, that is in her teaching authority, to interpret the natural moral law. But that's actually what's being called in the question <laughs> today. Yes. You know, uh, yes. it's my it's my law, my intelligence, my freedom versus the natural moral law, which God has written to the hearts of every single human being who's made in his image and likeness. So Pope Paul VI saying, well, there's, there's, no one can deny that the church has authority in this area, but that's exactly what's being denied by our culture. Right, the right. church has any authority to tell me what to do with my body. Exactly. And that actually, you know, this this beginning of the great age of dissent in the church really does begin with Paul VI and, and Humanae Vitae. It, it's not that Paul VI caused it, but the... You know, I think one of the things I mentioned last week and uh, when we were talking about the history of this document is that when the when John the 23rd had set up the uh, commission to advise him on the questions and then Paul the sixth continued that commission and even expanded it, that commission issued their report in 1966. And then in early 67, part of it got leaked in what many people have interpreted as an attempt to put pressure on the Pope. And that majority of the of the voting members of the commission at the time had voted that to say that the church should allow, in certain circumstances, the use of contraception within marriage. And that really started to kind of set the stage that was basically changing expectations in the context, again, of a very turbulent 1967 68, very great changes in society, um, especially around sexuality and and around expressions of, of love. Um, this is, again, the summer of love is 67, 68 in there. And so there's a completely new attitude in secular society. And people within the church had been hearing these rumblings that, oh, the church is going to change on the question. And Paul VI doesn't, right? Paul VI actually examines the same questions, and we'll get into this today, and comes to a different conclusion and affirms, reaffirms the church's traditional teaching. And so um, the fact that the church, as, as you say, no member of the faithful could possibly deny that the church can teach on the question. Well, unfortunately, the stage had been set for the faithful to deny this, for members of the faithful to dissent from the teaching, including great numbers of clergy, all the way up to entire bishops' conferences around the world. Yes, uh, Some of the bishops' conferences in, in the Dutch Bishops' Conference and, and the Austrian Bishops' Conference. The Canadian um, Bishops' even Conference. Even the Canadian yep. Bishops' Conference, exactly. The American Bishops' Conference stood firm on the question, um, and, uh, and rightly so, I think, because, again, Paul VI proves to be a visionary and a prophet, uh, as we'll see in the next couple weeks as we continue to dive deeper. Um, but he, he builds his case to say, look, the church is competent on this because he says Jesus Christ uh, gave his divine power to Peter and the other apostles and sent them to the nations to teach his commandments. And he says, and he made them the authentic guardians and interpreters of the whole moral law, not just the divine law, not just that based on revelation, but also the natural law, because the natural law, as he says, the natural law, too, declares the will of God, and its faithful observance is necessary for man's eternal salvation. If you directly and intentionally frustrate the will of God, 
you are standing yourself in opposition to God and to God's will. So he's saying you have to be in accordance with the natural law and the divine law if you want to be saved. And so he's really setting it forth here in very strong terms um, in a way that is meant to teach and to invite and to guide the faithful of the church. Absolutely correct. The, the, and what what's happened after Humanae Vitae is people kind of set themselves up uh, against the uh, the teaching authority of the church, saying that the church doesn't have competency in this area because uh, it doesn't take into account personal experience. You see, so 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 they're praxis, right? The exactly, yeah, praxis, right? Yeah. So so you have the, the the church talking about the the tenets of natural moral law, and the church actually articulate this beautifully uh, because the, the Ten Commandments is the kind of the, 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 the spelling out of that natural moral law. And of course, we know there's an entire right. section of the catechism that breaks down the Ten Commandments. So yeah, so the church most definitely has authority in this area. And so what happens, we set ourselves up against church authority. Um, and, and this is one of the, the, it was just happened in the past, of course, but in the last 50 years, this was uh, the document that kind of uh, where people kind of set themselves against the church teaching and decide to be their own magisterium, their own teaching authority, uh, kind of like the Tower of Babel. You know, we, we can build our, our own tower, and, and, you mm-hmm. know, <laughs> as opposed to following God, we'll follow ourselves. And that's exactly, exactly what's happened. Well, this next section is called Special Studies, and this kind of revisits what we talked about in, in the historical portion of last week's show. Um, it kind of speaks about this commission that John the Twenty-Third set up uh, in March 1963, and it says, Its task was to examine views and opinions concerning married life, and especially on the correct regulation of births. And it was also to provide the teaching authority of the church with such evidence as would enable it to give an apt reply in this matter. And there's an important thing here. Paul VI is saying that it was the commission's job to advise, not to decide, and not to say this is what the church should teach. They were to advise and to gather the information so that the pope, who is the competent authority, could make the final decision. As I mentioned last week, John the Twenty-Third appointed six members of the commission originally. Paul the Sixth expanded that commission to seventy-two members, which were primarily experts and theologians, and then sixteen members of the hierarchy: cardinals, archbishops, and bishops. Sixteen of them alone were the voting members, who were listening to the experts and the theologians and deciding on on what uh, you know which way they wanted to advise the pope and they delivered their final report in 1966 uh, as I mentioned before, selected documents were leaked to the media in spring 67, and Humanae Vitae came out in July 68. So the Pope received the reports and then took his time reading and listening to others as well, and praying and seeking the guidance of the Holy Spirit. And uh, that leads us then to paragraph six, which is the most beautiful title of a paragraph I've ever seen in a papal document. The Magisterium's reply. He says, this is the teaching authority of the church that is speaking right here. And it is so important. Lead us through this paragraph, Deacon. Yeah, so it says, the conclusions arrived at by the commission could not be considered by us, that is the, the, the teaching authority of the, the church. papal us. The yeah. papal us. <laughs> as definitive and absolutely certain dispensing us from the duty of examining personally this serious question. In other words, what he's saying is the the teaching authority church doesn't uh, make its judgments based on majority opinion 
or or right. committee or committee work. I mean, a vote of a committee. Exactly, yeah. exactly. He there was not complete agreement concerning the moral norms to be proposed, and especially because certain approaches and criteria for a solution to this question had emerged, which were at variance with the moral doctrine on marriage constantly taught by the magisterium of the church. He says because there was an agreement. Um, uh, in the commission itself and because some of the things the commission were finding or were recommending were going against the constant and unwavering teaching of the church. So he had to step in and say, okay, I need to make a, a prudential judgment on behalf of the entire church once and for all on this on this situation. This is one of those points now that we're getting to in this next half paragraph where I'm reminded of G.K. Chesterton saying that tradition is the democracy of the dead as well as the living. And Paul VI says, the constant unwavering teaching of the church has a voice here too, not just the 16 members of the commission that we appointed. And he finishes this paragraph with, we, by virtue of the mandate entrusted to us by Christ, intend to give our reply to this series of grave questions. So this is an act of papal teaching authority and authentic and authoritative teaching authority. And so that's what we're going to get in this uh, in the rest of this document, this very short document at that. Yeah. And if we look at just a little bit uh, 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 history, if you go back to 1908, we can see that when the Lambeth Conference met then, that's the Anglican Church Conference, they rejected artificial contraception back in 1908. They were actually oh, okay. rejected it at the Lambeth Conference. What's happened since then? Since 1908, a few years after 1913 is when Margaret Sanger began publishing The Woman Rebel, which was promoting contraception. Mm-hmm. So, so Margaret Sanger starts to have an influence here. In 1920, Lambeth Conference promoting meets again. eugenic contraception. Exactly. By the way. This is to clean up the poor people and less of them and more of us is what she was really getting at. Exactly. So the Lambeth Conference in 1920 again rejected artificial contraception, but this time by a narrow margin. Then in mm. 1931, Margaret Sanger founds the, the American Birth Control League, which is now called Planned Parenthood. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the Supreme Court the United States upheld a laws mandating compulsory sterilization. So we're, we're seeing the effects of, of, of Planned Parenthood here. And then now, a few years later, after that Supreme Court decision in 1930, is the Lambeth Conference meets again and accepts contraception. Uh, again, in limited circumstances, but they, they accepted and that that opened the floodgates. And so yeah. uh, and later that year, Pope that's when Pope Pius XI came out with Casti Canubii, which is an encyclical letter, which upheld the church's constant teaching on the dignity of marriage and against artificial contraception as well. So just, again, little background there showing that just because the, the world's opinions are changing and other Christian communities are changing their opinions doesn't mean the church. Because, again, um, Pius the, the, the 11th stood firm on the church's constant teaching and uh, Paul VI exactly the same thing. Absolutely. And so, again, as as Chesterton said, you know, tradition is the democracy of the dead and the living, you know, and it's a. Uh, Paul VI reaffirms this constant and traditional teaching of the church. So the next entire section is entitled Doctrinal Principles. So it begins with paragraph seven. Procreation, he says, the question of human procreation involves more than the limited aspects specific to such disciplines as biology, psychology, demography, or sociology. It is the whole man and the whole mission to which he is called that must be considered. That's because procreation touches on all parts of us. And 
um, both the natural aspect of man and the supernatural aspect must be kept in mind, as well as also to be kept in mind are the demands of married love and the requirements of responsible parenthood. So Paul is saying we are looking truly at a holistic view of human sexuality here. We're not talking about just a, a, just an emotional feeling or just a sociological thing or just even or just a physical thing. We're talking about the whole part of, of the person, including our supernatural end. So that's why this is so important for us. Again, as we, as he mentioned in the very opening of the of the document itself, the church can't ignore these questions, for they concern matters intimately intimately connected with the life and happiness of human beings. And so we're looking at the total person. This is a wonderful holistic vision that, in reality, should entirely appeal to our generation because we are the people who don't want chemicals in our food and we and we want work life balance and we want all of these things that talk about feeding the whole person and Paul the 6 says your sexuality is that same way it's not just i'm going to give you everything except the power to create i'm going to with, withhold this part of me from you no, it's a holistic vision that he is going to offer in this section. Yeah, and I think his concern, his grave concern, was that this holistic, integrated person would become fragmented because mm-hmm. of the use of contraception. But not just mm-hmm. impacting on the marriage and the relationship, but the impact in the world itself would become fragmented. You know, because when you yes. separate, as we'll see, love and life are two things that God never intended to be separated. And so when we start when we start to fragment that we start to in a sense lose ourself, lose the very self that God created us to be, then we try to find resolution within ourselves and looking within ourselves and looking instead of looking outside of ourselves and looking toward God. So it's just this this turn this, this turn toward the inward self, and we're seeing that in in huge. Um, proportions today in, in the policies that are being set by governments and even within relationships between uh, men and women in our culture today. Yeah. I mean, heck, even walk around in public and you'll see people with their faces in their phones, even though they're in a in the midst of a large crowd of humanity and they're not interacting with one another. They're interacted entirely on themselves. They even look like a little yin yang of them of their own, them and their phones. You know, it's like entirely a the turn inward rather than to be engaged with those around them and in community. Yeah. And we'll talk about, cause he does talk about technology um, uh, a little later here toward the end of the document. So we'll, cause oh, I do want to talk about that too. How so, so technology is a wonderful tool, but it can also be a, a, a source of fragmentation um, uh, as well. Uh, and, and even some illicit use, like for example, pornography and things like that. So, so we will talk right. about technology a little bit as well. Then in the next paragraph, he starts talking about, uh, God's loving design about the beauty of married love and the connection, um, in the church's competency talking about natural moral law and as it relates to marriage itself. Cause remember, right. he's always rooting this, this conjugal relationship within the context of married love and covenant relationship. You know, yes. again, if we, when we start to break that apart, then he foresees all kinds of trouble happening within within uh, marriages and within the, the, the world itself. So he says marriage then is far from being an effect of chance or the result of blind evolution of natural forces. That's really important because we yeah. have atheists today, like, for example, Sam Harris, who's a neuroscientist 
who yes. who says that you know our relationships between each other, men and women, are are the results of apish urges that have been regulated by societal norms. Um, see, n- n- notice what, he, what Sam Harris is saying here. He's saying that marriage and the institution of marriage is something that's regulated by cultural, by out, by things outside of itself, not by any natural law that comes from God within the self. These apish urges and desires that we have, have flow through evolution and are regulated by sociology and anthropology and psychology and uh, all of these social norms, which regulate all of that, not have anything to do with, with a natural law that that comes to us from God. So nothing is imposed on us, but something that flows from an understanding of the, the fundamental principle of the natural law says do good and avoid evil. So it's not an either, it's, it's an either or not a both and. What an impoverished view of love. You know, I mean, talk to anybody who's ever talk to anybody who's ever read a Jane Austen novel and tell me that that is what is being reflected in the discussion of love, even in an even in a novel, you know, or or in your own experience, were you brutishly attracted to your lovely wife Colleen? I mean, is is that what you would attribute that to? No, I mean, no. now 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 see, see, this is this is very interesting. This is what this is exactly what happened in Garden of Eden. How how Satan asked that question? Did God say you should not eat of any tree in the garden? Now, see, he's trying to twist and distort what God actually said. So look what look what the atheists are doing. So he's saying like, okay, we do have these natural desire and attractions, you know, just as animals have this desire to procreate, we have this desire. We, when you know, we look at a woman, your heart starts to race, your hands start to sweat. There, there is a physicalness to it. There is a because yeah. we're we're body, mind, soul integrated persons, so they all flow. But but see, they're all interconnected with each other. And when we right. start to separate that interconnectedness, is when we start to have problems. We start we start seeing each other as objects and not as persons. That's the danger of what atheism, modern contemporary atheism, is is doing within our culture today and changing and influencing the thinking of our young people, especially our young adults, encouraging this fragmentation of the self. Well, and this is what the entire hookup culture is, too, right? It's I have this urge. I need this urge satisfied. You look like a person that could satisfy it. And then we never have to talk again. I'm not in any way interacting with you except to satisfy this physical urge of mine. That's fragmentation that is using others as objects rather than communicating as persons. And when you take that outside of the context of married love, then anything's okay. I mean, if that's the, if the criteria that you just set, Ken, that the way the culture thinks, if that's the criteria, then it doesn't, the being married doesn't matter. It doesn't matter who can satisfy that desire. It could be another woman. It could be a, a, someone of the, of the same sex. It doesn't matter. Yeah. All that matters yeah. is me satisfying my desires and urges. And, what's the, and what becomes the criteria now, Ken? As long as I don't hurt anybody. That becomes a criteria. Forget the moral norms. Forget what God said. It becomes, well, as long as I don't hurt anybody, as long as the person is okay with what I'm doing, then it's okay. So I'm okay, you're okay. Consent becomes the sole criteria, ultimately. Exactly. And that's impoverished. It is not a, a communion of persons. It is not, it's transactional rather than relational. That, well, exactly. It comes to transaction. Yeah. And yeah. I've said that many, many times. People have heard me speak. Uh, it's contract relationships, not covenant. Uh, just like you buy a cell phone and you get a contract. That's the way they treat each other as objects for pleasure and gratification. I'm going to admit I do not love AT&T. 
because it's a transaction when I buy the phone from them. Yeah, exactly. But but Paul Six brings us back, and this will be something that would be developed much more fully in the theology of the body by uh, by John Paul too. Yeah, now Paul Six says, as a consequence, husbands and wives through their mutual gift of themselves. Now that's language that we heard mm-hmm. plenty when we looked at Mulieris Vitate, the dignification of women right. by John Paul II. This mutual gift of themselves, which is specific and exclusive to them alone. Develop that union of two persons in which they perfect one another. That's see, that's beautiful. The perfection. Mm-hmm. So in other words, I don't find my perfection in myself. I I become perfect. Uh, Jesus be perfect as a heavenly father is perfect. I find my perfection in the mutual gift of myself to the other person. That's yep. what makes fulfills me and, and makes me in a sense perfect. That doesn't mean without flaw or, or error. Um, it means mature, right. whole, and it's teleos in Greek or Talmim in Hebrew, which means perf- uh, uh, which means mature, whole, and complete. So I find my maturity, my wholeness, and completion, my relationship with God lived out in this covenant relationship with my spouse, with this other person, give myself totally and completely mind, body, and soul, everything, holding nothing back of my love from this other person, which ma- which is a reflection of Christ's love for us, this, this what we call kenosis, this gift of myself, this breaking open and pouring out of itself on the cross. Absolutely. And this is that idea where... By the way, when he says, you know, that the they perfect one another, let's not say that they are then made perfect. That, I mean, you, yeah. you were rightly so. They perfect one another, moving us towards that perfection. That's right. That perfection which will only be achieved in God. That, that, that's why Jesus says must be perfect as the Heavenly Father is perfect. We can only realize that perfection ultimately in the beatific vision, living face to face with God forever. But on earth... Uh, marriage is a way of living that, in a sense, perfection. The priesthood and religious life is a way of living that perfection, uh, so to speak. Well, and that, that, this is a reflection, of course, of the very opening part of this paragraph, too, because married love, as he says, takes its origin from God, who is love. So ours is an image of the divine communion of persons. That's what marriage is is a communion of persons. That's right. And the cooperation in that communion of persons is where we have the generation and rearing of new lives, as Paul the Sixth says, and, and others having children. Children is a natural outflow from that covenantal married love, that complete gift of self. Well, believe it or not, Deacon, our time has run short, but you and I will be together again next week as we'll pick up the conversation, maybe wrap up a little bit about here because there's a little bit about sacramental grace that we uh, will pick up when we begin next week again. But until then, uh, we need to pause and say that you can always connect with us via Facebook. Just type in uh, Living Stones. You can also go to moderndayradio.com to view and download the complete archives of the show. Connect with us on Twitter at Catholic Stones or visit our website, livingstonesmedia.org. O-R-G, where you can download this document and follow along with us next week. But until then, Deacon, might we have your blessing. May Almighty God bless you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. We'll see you next week here on Living Stones. You've been listening to Living Stones with Ken Hellenius and Deacon Harold Burke-Sivers. Living Stones is produced at the studios of Modern Day Radio in Portland, Oregon. For more information about this show, go to moderndayradio.com. That's M-A-T-E-R-D-E-I radio.com.